Thank you, Bill and Annette and, uh, and Susie for being with us today as well. We're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew 11 this morning. Before I, we get to that passage, though, I wanted to share a story that happened uh, several years ago when I received a call from a lady who was informing me that her husband uh, was down to days to live uh, because he was suffering from cancer. It was a family that we knew. They weren't exactly members of our church, but they had been involved in churches that we had been involved in for, for several years. And, and so it was uh, a privilege of mine to be able to go to their home and talk to Jim. And Lois went with me, and she was uh, out in the other room talking to Phyllis when I walked into Jim's bedroom where he was. And frankly, I would not have recognized Jim if I didn't know that it was his house. Uh, cancer had just uh, kind of taken over his body and had pretty much withered him away. As it turned out, he only had a few more days uh, to live. And it was my privilege as a pastor to go and spend that time with him. We began by just sort of reminiscing on some common events that we had experienced together that had brought joy to us. One was, uh, being, one was his daughter's wedding, which I had the privilege of officiating. And it was a very unique wedding for a couple of reasons. One was that one was the ring bearer. You know how ring bearers are in weddings. They're the wild card all the time. You just never know what you're going to get with a ring bearer. The, usually it's a little boy who's dressed in a tux, and he's coming down with a white pillow, and he comes to the front, and you don't know if he's going to stand still or pick his nose or just what he's going to do that's going to disrupt everything. Well, this was the best ring bearer wedding that I ever officiated. The ring bearer was the groom's dog that day. They have fastened the rings to his collar, and he came down the aisle with only looking at the, his master, came down, he, he kneeled down, sat on the ground right next to uh, the, the groom through the whole wedding, didn't make a peep, and stood up and gave the rings uh, right on cue. It was a great, uh, great experience. The other thing, though, that was unique about that wedding was the gym, this man, in his retirement, he had worked for a couple of years lear uh, learning, uh, taking lessons on classical guitar. And kind of the ultimate thing that he wanted to do with these lessons was play for his daughter's wedding. And he was as nervous as all get out. He was playing a duet with his teacher uh, at the wedding. It was the prelude uh, to the service. And Jim was just so nervous about that. Uh, and he did such a wonderful job. I forget what song it was that he played, but he, he played it beautifully. He nailed it. And when he was all through, I mean, he was just so nervous. He came and he, he sat down next to his wife in the front row. And I had to lean forward and say, Jim, you forgot something. And he kind of looked around like, what did I forget? I go, you got to go get your daughter and bring her in to the service. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he got up and went back to, to walk his daughter down the aisle. And so we were reminiscing about those, uh, that particular day. It was just a, a beautiful, fun day. And, uh, and then we got to the point where I said, Jim, could I share with you again just what the gospel is, what you're, you're about to experience? And he said, sure, I'd love you to do that. And so I... I spent the next four or five minutes just going over things that he'd heard before, uh, things that he said he believed. Uh, I, I explained to him how when he, when he met the Lord, it wasn't going to be a matter of his record and his obedience, but it was going to be what, what Christ had done for him, that he died for his sins, that he lived for the sake of his righteousness, and just all the beauty of the gospel that you share in those kinds of situations. 
And half the time I was talking, Jim would, his eyes would be closed and half the time they'd be open. And when I finally got to the end, I said, Jim, do you understand all that? Is there any questions you have? And Jim just simply said, I really like how that sounds. I just hope it's not a bunch of bull oni. Except he didn't use baloney. He used the other word that starts like baloney. And I was thinking whether to say that word this morning, but if I did, none of you would hear or, or remember anything that I, rest, I say in the rest of the sermon. It would forever become the sermon that the pastor said baloney uh, in, in the sermon. Uh, but Jim laid that out there. And when he did, I just kind of chuckled because Jim had kind of an honorary streak to him. I knew that. And, uh, and I think it was probably a test on his part. Uh, whoever, whichever minister passed the test could do his funeral. It's kind of how Jim probably, probably looked at it. But I kind of chuckled and smiled and, and we took, kind of took the gloves off and got down to brass tacks. You know, uh, I just hope this isn't a bunch of bull owning. Whenever I think about that time with Jim, I think in Scripture, believe it or not, there's a passage that always comes to my mind, and it's this passage in Matthew chapter 11, uh, and it concerns John the Baptist, and I want to read that text to you uh, at this point. In Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6, it says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to the Messiah to say, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? A lot of the translations read, are you the one to come or should we keep on looking? And Jesus replied, to these disciples, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's a startling passage when you think about it. I've entitled the sermon, Imagine a Preacher with Doubts. Uh, here's John the Baptist, the, the second most famous person in the Gospels. Uh, if we were to pair them up, it would be, you know, Batman and Robin, or the Lone Ranger and Tano, or, or Sherlock and Holmes, uh, or Sherlock and Watson. And, and we think, how can they be on different pages? Why would John be uh, asking that question at this particular point in his life? What's going on? Can a follower, can someone be a follower, even a preacher? Be a follower of Jesus Christ and still struggle with doubts. And what we see in this passage is the answer to that is yes. The answer is yes. So if John can doubt, so can you. And I want to put that in a context that we see in this passage this morning to help you even in your doubts. Why is it that we doubt? There's three things that, that I see coming out of this passage that uh, tell us why we doubt. The first thing, first reason we doubt is because often life is difficult for us. Life is difficult. When we come to this passage, we read that John was in prison. And if you know the story about John the Baptist, he had this ministry. He first comes on the scene uh, when Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and they're both pregnant at that point, Elizabeth with John. 
Mary with Jesus, and when Mary enters the room, uh, John leaps in his mother's womb. You know, there's a reaction that John had even in utero uh, to the presence of Jesus. The next time that we see them together is when John is baptizing down at the Jordan River, and Jesus comes and, and tells John, you need to baptize me. And John is like, I'm not worthy to unloose the, the sandal on your foot. How can I baptize you? You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, I want you to baptize me. And John, at that point and in that setting, pointed to Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John, from that point forward, uh, he had been this preacher out in the wilderness. Uh, he, he dressed funny. He, he had a harsh message. He fasted. He did all these things that were expected of religious people. And he had a bunch of people that were following him. He had a lot of disciples that would go out to the desert just to hear John preach and, and learn from him what God was, was telling the people. And at that point, John uh, told his disciples, this is the one you need to follow. And in one of the accounts of the Gospels, we're told in John's account, John chapter 1, uh, that it was really John's disciples, John's disciples, who were the first ones to swing over to Jesus. In, in John's gospel, he said there were two of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, who were following him, and John said, go and follow Jesus. One was Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, and the first thing Andrew did was went to get Peter. The other one, we're not told who it is, but it's most likely John, the author of the gospel. Uh, and, and one of the things funny about John's gospel is he's always making sure everyone knows that he was before Peter, you know. And he doesn't mention his name. He just says there were two disciples, Andrew and another one, and Andrew went and got Peter and brought him. And so the one that didn't isn't mentioned is the one that beat Peter to the punch, and that would have been John. The other account that's kind of funny in that regard is at the resurrection in John chapter 20. It says that John and Peter, when the woman's, when Mary came and told them that the Lord had, wasn't in the tomb anymore, two disciples took off running, Peter and John. And John adds to just a little parenthetical note, Peter was out in front, but then John ran by him and got to the tomb first. So there's this little trash thing going on, trash talk going on, seems like in John's gospel between him and, and Peter all the time. But, but very early on, John the Baptist steered his disciples away from him to Jesus. And then we find that what happened with John is that he ran into problems when he began to call out the political leader of the day and of the region, Herod Antipas. He called him out for, for marrying his brother's sister. And we don't know all the circumstances surrounding that event, but it was something that, that Herod was not happy about. His wife was not happy about it either. And they, John was eventually thrown in prison. And there's, a, there's a, a real sad, sordid story connected to that, that John is finally beheaded and, and that's how he suffered his, his, his death. And it's between that time where he'd been thrown in prison and, he be, and he's beheaded that we have this account in Matthew 11 uh, that John is in prison. And so it's natural to think, how can John believe when he's in prison? Uh, what, what was he thinking about Jesus up to that point? I'm sure that he had a concept of what Jesus would do that was pretty grand in his day. And yet 
what he, what he discovers is that now he's in, a, in this hellhole prison, and it's not, I, I mean, don't glamorize that at all. It's just as, as gruesome, as bad as it could possibly be. He's disappointed. He's fearful. He's discouraged over where uh, things are and where the bleak future that's ahead of him. Um, and he says to his disciples, go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we keep on looking? Life is just sometimes difficult. And your doubts may arise at times because of the difficulties of life. It may be a suffering similar to what John experienced. It may be a sickness. It may be sin in your life that you're just having a hard time working through. It may be trying to match up the claims of science to what God's word has to say. It may be trying to deal with the realities of miracles and faith. And all those things are just, they're not easy to work through. Life is difficult. And John says, Ask Jesus, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? The second reason that we doubt, I think, is because Jesus' claims are often outrageous, and it brings doubt into the picture. John had heard what Jesus was saying and doing, and frankly, it was emotionally and intellectually disturbing to him. It was actually offensive. Jesus says in in verse 6, Uh, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble or take offense on account of me. He realized that's where John was. He was poised to take offense over what Jesus had had been saying. You know, what I picture in my mind, we're not told this exactly, but I picture the disciples who had become disciples of Jesus listening to what Jesus was saying and then going back to John and said, John, here's what Jesus is saying now. Here's what Jesus is saying now. And Jesus would say, before Abraham was, I am. And John would go, wow, I didn't realize that. Uh, you, you know, or he would, uh, in, in the previous passage in Matthew chapter uh, 10, Jesus had been teaching the disciples, and he was laying some heavy, heavy stuff on the disciples at that point. Uh, in fact, toward the end of Matthew chapter 10, right before these verses, Jesus says to his disciples, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These were outrageous claims that Jesus was making. And as John heard these things, he began to wonder when Jesus would say, I have the power to forgive sin. I have, whatever I say is going to be acknowledged up in heaven by my father. And John is just kind of shaking his head and going, man, is this, is this guy for real? Because he sounds an awful lot like a megalomaniac at this point. He sounds like a megalomaniac at this point. And if we're honest and we really read the words of Jesus and the things that he said in the gospels, we can't help but come to that same conclusion as well. Apart from knowing who he is, it's pretty outrageous, the things that he has to say. And John is hearing these things unfiltered from his former disciples who are now following Jesus. And and it raises doubts in his mind. Are you really the one? Are you really the one? I think the the final reason why doubts enter into our our minds and our hearts is because not only are Jesus' claims often outrageous, but his agenda is often very, very confusing. 
John expected someone very different, I believe, than the person that Jesus was. Um, their, their ministries were often contrasted. If you remember in the Gospels, uh, Jesus talked about how uh, when John came, he came fasting, and, and you criticized him. When I came, I came uh, partying, as it were, and you criticized me. But those were kind of the two extremes of Jesus' ministry and John's ministry. John's was a, a ministry of deprivation. Jesus' ministry was one of celebration as he, as he worked through with people. And, and John is just a little bit confused by this because ultimately he believes, as any good first century Jew would have believed, that if the Messiah was here, things were going to change for the better for the people of Israel. And yet it didn't seem to be going that way. John had a lot of Elijah in him. John was uh, looking for the spectacular, and, and he uh, was out in the wilderness talking with his people about repenting from their sin and following God. Uh, Jesus, on the other hand, was quietly working in among people and bringing, bringing healing to people. And it's almost as if John is saying at this point, sitting in the prison, as his disciples are visiting him and trying to comfort, he's almost saying, go ask Jesus if I didn't get one of the memos here. I must not have got all the memos. What am I missing? Are you really the one, or should we keep looking? Now, how does Jesus respond to John? That's far more important than John's doubts, but I want you to see that the first thing that Jesus says to John is that your doubts are okay. He doesn't say that, but it's inferred by the way that Jesus responds to him. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche has a, a quote that he, uh, in talking about Christianity at one point, I think it's, it's going to show up here in just a moment. He says, Christianity has done its utmost to close the circle and declare even doubt to be sin. What is wanted are blindness and intoxication and an eternal song over the waves in which reason has drowned. Now, Nietzsche may be right about Christianity in general, but what he says there is not true about Christ. Christ didn't approach doubts that way. Um, he looked at what he looked at John's disciples with these words, and he didn't say, "Tell John, how dare you? How dare you have those kind of doubts? Don't you know anything more than that?" Um, but Jesus saw that John's question was coming as a result of a very honest struggle that John had here. It wasn't just because he was in prison. There was someone else in the Gospels who had a very similar kind of approach to Jesus. Uh, it's in the end of Luke's gospel where one person says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Who was that? That was the thief on the cross, one of the two thieves that were there next to Jesus. He says, aren't you the Christ? If you're the Christ, then you should be able to save yourself and save us. And you see, as the thief is, is confronting Jesus, he's asking the question, Jesus, what, what can you do for me? Can you get me off this cross? If John had been approaching Jesus that way, John would have said, Jesus, if, if you're the one, why don't you spring me out of this prison? Why am I suffering here in this prison? That's how John would have, would have said it. But John didn't say it that way. Jesus realized that John's doubts were genuine, and they, and they, were, they were certainly were understandable because of the situation he was in. But it wasn't a demandingness that is there 
uh, in, in John's words. And so Jesus gives to him a gracious answer. And it's a gracious answer, I think, that he would give to any one of you or to me if I were to come with him in that posture with those sorts of doubts because of the way life is, has uh, turned out, the way that uh, I look at Jesus' claims and they sometimes seem rather outrageous. And when I look at Jesus' agenda, sometimes it's very, very confusing. Um, Tim Keller has written these words. He says that a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen carefully to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. You see, that should be comforting to us that the Lord is able to deal with that. He's telling us through John in this account that our doubts are okay. Our doubts are understandable because of, of, of how life works out for us. But that's not where he ends. He doesn't just empathize with John. Uh, the next thing he tells John is don't be scandalized. Don't be offended uh, by, what you're, by what you're experiencing and what you're thinking. You see, scandalized people are often scandalized because they start with the wrong question. John didn't. The questions that scandalize people start with is, why am I in this mess? If there's a God, why doesn't he save me from this mess? If there's a God, why doesn't he, why doesn't he uh, communicate more clearly to me in the middle of, of this crisis that I'm in? John doesn't say that. John starts with the right question. He says, are you the one? Are you the one? And if you're not, should we keep on looking? John wants to know, first of all, who God is. And then, in light of that, he's going to understand what his predicaments are meant to convey to him and what he is to learn from them. Uh, now, we, we tend to be scandalized by one of two things here. First, we, we are scandalized by Jesus' claims. And when Jesus made these claims, like in chapter 10 or, or even earlier, you have to come to one of two conclusions, really, friends. And, and even to this day, if you're honest, either Jesus uh, is one of the craziest persons ever or he's much bigger than anyone that you and I could have ever thought of or expected. There really is no middle ground. Modern man tries to find a middle ground where we can put Jesus and say he was, he was a good man, he did great things, but he's not this, he's not that. You got to take these things that he said and hold them at arm's length. We try to find a middle ground. But Jesus didn't let anyone stay in middle ground. He either says, you believe what I say or you're scandalized by it. You're going to embrace it or you're going to reject it. And if Jesus Christ is this one, then what John realizes is that Jesus Christ can demand everything. He can demand everything. If he's the one that he says he is, if he's the eternal God before Abraham was, I am. I can forgive your sins. Whatever I forgive on earth, the Father will forgive in heaven. 
if he's that one, then he has the right to demand everything of us. <clears throat> and, and so Jesus says, don't be scandalized by that. He's either the wicked and crazy one or he is utterly Lord. But we can also be scandalized by that agenda that we already said is often very uh, confusing. Uh, John had a lot of Elijah in him. In fact, uh, when, when the Old Testament talked about the coming of the Messiah, it talked about how he would be preceded by Elijah. And there were all kinds of uh, theories about what that exactly meant. And as we look back on that story, we realize in the Gospels, we realize that John was that person who was prophesied. He was the Elijah that was to come before the Messiah. But we know from the life of Elijah that Elijah did a lot of incredible things, a lot of powerful things, a lot of demonstrations of, of the power of God. And, and so when Jesus comes, he's different because he's not doing those sorts of things. I mean, at one point when some of the Samaritans are rude to Jesus, John and James, two of the disciples, says, Lord, why don't we just call down fire on these people and take care of them that way? And, and Jesus says, no, you don't, you don't get my agenda. You don't understand where I'm coming from. And he directed them uh, to love their enemies, actually, in that context. Uh, Jesus's agenda was very easy for them uh, to trip over. Um, and John just had to come to grips with the fact that that agenda, when Jesus began to talk about the cross, and when he began to embrace weakness, and to say things like, he who is greatest among you must be the least. John realized that this was a different approach than the approach of Elijah. And that agenda was confusing to John. It was tempting for John to be scandalized by that agenda. Uh, it, to whatever extent John knew that Jesus was on his way to the cross, it must have caused him just to scratch his head and say, are you really the one? Is this, is, is this what we've waited all these hundreds of years for? Are you the one? Or should we keep on looking? Well, Yanni Martel says at one point in the life of Pi, he says, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life, he says it's akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. We, he's saying there we can't camp on doubt. At some point, we have to believe in something. We can't just stay in our doubts. Frederick, Frederick Buchner has put it a different way. I love I love his way of putting it. He says, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Uh, but it has to move. It can't stay in that place of being scandalized or just saying that my doubts are okay. So what Jesus finally says to John's disciples to go back and tell John is, is in essence, he says, come to me. It's okay. Those doubts are fine. But tell John, that it's okay to come to me because the gospel is not something that they're going to do. It's something that I'm going to do for them. The poor and the needy will get that, Jesus is saying. Megalomaniacs won't. Megalomaniacs, they don't gravitate toward the poor and the needy. They gravitate toward the rich and the elite. They want to impress them. And that's going to give megalomaniacs a status and, and uh, give them influence. But Jesus doesn't say, that, doesn't say that. In fact, he says to John's disciples, go back and report to John what you hear and see. And he doesn't talk about, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. He doesn't talk about the wedding at Cana where he 
turn water into wine. He doesn't talk about miracles in that sense. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's not an agenda for a megalomaniac, but that was Jesus' agenda because in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus first announced his ministry, he was at a little uh, place of worship in Galilee, but by the sea, and he got up and he opened the scroll uh, into Isaiah's prophecy, and he read these words from Luke chapter 4. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus went to announce the beginning of his ministry, those are the verses that he chose to read. I'm here to release the prisoner, to heal the sick, to take care of the poor. And it says in Luke 4 that after he read those words, he rolled up the scroll, sat down, and he says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in me. And what Jesus began to do from that point forward was just what he told John's disciples to tell John. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. One of my favorite verses in the, the Christmas song, the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, is the one that begins, No more let sin and sorrow grow, where thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. And what Jesus is telling John's disciples is, that, is he's telling them, I'm reversing the curse, John. I'm reversing the curse. And I can't do it for everyone, but it, there's evidence there that I'm reversing the curse and that's the sign of the Messiah. And blessed is the one who's not scandalized by that. You see, Jesus wants each one of his friends to come to him uh, to have our lives changed completely. There is no middle ground. We can't just carve out a place for Jesus to be in our lives and for us to remain comfortable. He's either crazy or he's utterly the Lord. And if he's utterly the Lord, he demands all. John says, Jesus, if, if you're not the one, um, you've got to keep looking. That's really different than, again, the, the thief on the cross, isn't it? The thief on the cross says, if you're the one, get us out of here. John says, Lord, if you're not the one, we need to keep looking. What John knew was that that's, that's something in our DNA. We're looking for the one who will reverse the curse. We're looking for the one who can meet our need deep down in our hearts, the need, of, the need that we have because we're alienated from our Father, uh, the one who can bring to us that relationship back 
again. As I sat that, di- that evening in, in Jim's bedroom and, and wondered what to say when a man tells me, I hope it's not just a bunch of baloney, we began to talk about faith. We began to talk about the fact that often we get tripped up over faith because we're worried about whether our faith is strong enough or not. And I said, Jim, don't worry about that. That's not the issue. The issue isn't how strong your faith is. The issue is whom your faith is in. It's the object of your faith, not the quality of your faith. Are you trusting in Jesus? And if you're just... If, if this is all the faith you have and it feels so insignificant compared to others that you see that you think their faith is like this, that's good enough because Jesus makes up that difference. He makes up that difference for each one of us. Jesus says to John's disciples, I'm the one, go back and tell John that, I'm the only one. Come to me and experience the rest that I have to offer to you. Those words are, as important for us today as they were for John in the first century prison. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you meet us where we are, that you're not, you're not scandalized by our doubts, even though we're often scandalized by your claims and confused by your agenda. You're not scandalized by our doubts. And Lord, we come not with our fists clenched, but we come with our hands open so many times simply to ask you, Father, help, I believe, but just help my unbelief here. Because it doesn't always make sense. And Lord, we thank you that you're willing to accept us in that posture. We're, we're thankful that you're willing, Jesus, to go to the cross in order that our faith can be full, in order that we can have our relationship with the Father restored. We thank you for believing when we are tempted to doubt. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.